0: This is Democracy Now!
1: Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding.
0: For the first time in U.S. history, a former president has been criminally charged with conspiring to overturn an election. We'll look at this historic indictment of Donald J. Trump, who remains the Republican frontrunner in the 2024 election. We'll speak to former federal prosecutor Dennis Afterguth and Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen. Then to the war in Ukraine.
2: We do, of course, um, uh, support this summit. We have long said um, that it is important that Ukraine be in the driver's seat when it comes to any potential diplomatic resolution uh, to this war.
0: As Saudi Arabia prepares to host a peace summit this weekend, we'll look at the state of the war as Russia attacks grain ports in Ukraine, while Kiev escalates drone strikes inside Russia. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. For the first time in U.S. history, a former president has been criminally charged with conspiring to overturn an election. On Tuesday, Donald Trump was indicted on four counts, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, tampering with a witness, and conspiracy against the civil rights of citizens, the right of their vote to be counted. The indictment centers on Trump's efforts to stay in office after Joe Biden defeated him in November 2020. Trump, who is the Republican frontrunner in the 2024 race, now faces two federal indictments, as well as a state indictment, a criminal case in New York. No other U.S. president has ever been indicted before. Trump also faces a possible fourth indictment in Georgia for election interference. This is Special Counsel Jack Smith speaking Tuesday.
1: The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021 was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election.
0: Trump's lawyer, John Lauro, decried the indictment as a, quote, "...attack on free speech and political advocacy." The 45-page indictment also references six unnamed co-conspirators. It's believed the list includes four of Trump's lawyers—Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro, as well as Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official. Trump's trial has been assigned to District Judge Tanya Chutkin. She's an Obama appointee who's already overseen numerous cases linked to the January 6th insurrection, often sentencing defendants to longer terms than the prosecutors sought. We'll have more on the historic indictment after headlines. In related news, prosecutors in Michigan have charged two Trump allies over their attempts to illegally access and tamper with voting machines following the 2020 election. Matthew DiPerno unsuccessfully ran as a Republican candidate to become Michigan's attorney general last year. Darren Rendon is a former Republican state representative. They were both arraigned Tuesday, are due back in court next month. The American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado has sued the FBI, the Colorado Springs Police Department, and local officers for illegally searching the private Facebook messages of a local activist in the Chinook Center, a community organizing hub in Colorado Springs. The police also accessed the activist's cell phone, laptop, and external hard drives. This comes after revelations the FBI had infiltrated the Chinook Center by sending an undercover Colorado Springs detective to volunteer at the center in 2020. This was part of a broader FBI effort to infiltrate racial justice groups in Colorado after the police killing of George Floyd. A federal lawsuit brought by Iraqi torture survivors appears finally headed to trial after a federal judge refused to dismiss the case. The Iraqis are suing the U.S. military contractor Khaki, which was hired to provide interrogation services out of Ugraib, an Iraqi prison where the men were tortured by U.S. guards. The lawsuit was first filed in 2008. Since then, Khaki has attempted 18 times to have the case dismissed. Burma's military rulers granted deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi a pardon in five of the 19 cases against her. Suu Kyi was ousted and detained in February 2021 military coup. She'll remain under house arrest. She's a Nobel Peace Prize winner who once fought against the Burmese military, but later defended its genocide of Rohingya Muslims in 2017. On Monday, the military junta again extended a state of emergency and delayed elections that had been promised to take place this month. A local rights group said over 3,800 people have been killed in the military's crackdown on post-coup protests and over 24,000 people arrested. In Argentina, thousands of people representing different indigenous communities arrived in Buenos Aires Tuesday as part of a protest caravan. Among their demands is a halt to lithium-mining projects in their territories. This is Fabian Cruz of the Huancamaki Indigenous People Council.
3: These common resources of the people, we want to protect them. We understand there
1: are multinational companies that come and take the lithium from Argentina, but leave nothing behind. They leave nothing for Argentina's development, and they strip the communities of their territory. To us, that is genocide.
0: Lithium is used in many electric devices, including electric cars, but its extraction causes soil degradation, water shortages, damage to ecosystems, and often displaces local communities and destroys existing landscapes. Sweden's defended its free speech laws and says it has no plans to change them amidst a growing backlash to public burnings of the Quran. The burnings, which have also taken place in Denmark, have triggered widespread international condemnation and protests in Muslim countries." Back in the United States, Missouri Congressmember Cory Bush has reintroduced the unhoused Bill of Rights, which could provide universal housing in the U.S. by 2027, helping some one and a half million people who now live on the streets. Bush was herself once unhoused and forced to live in her car with her children. She said, quote, We have the power and money to end the unhoused crisis. We just need the will to reorient congressional priorities, she said. Here in New York, hundreds of migrants have been forced to sleep on the streets as mayor, mayor Eric Adams declared there's no more room. He called out the Biden administration for failing to help as over 90,000 people arrived in New York City over the past year and a half. In July, the mayor said New York City would distribute flyers at the U.S.-Mexico border, telling asylum seekers to consider another city housing and rights advocates have blasted the Adams administration for its handling of the situation this is Murad wauda of the new york immigration coalition
4: it's kind of another slap in the face to our you know historical new Yorkers who've been here and our most recent arrivals who are just seeking a little bit of help in this moment We need to actually stop doubling and tripling down on broken systems like our emergency shelter system and actually invest in getting people out of emergency shelter and
0: into permanent housing. New York officials are calling on the federal government to allow for expedited work permits for asylum seekers. In Long Island, New York, the suspect in the Gilgo Beach serial murders appeared in court Tuesday following his arrest last month. Fifty-nine-year-old Rex Hoyerman is accused of murdering three women. He's also been named as the prime suspect in a fourth murder. He's pleaded not guilty. This is Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney.
5: The victims went missing between July of 2010 and uh, September—I'm sorry, July of 2007 and uh, September of 2010— uh, and uh, in December of 2010, they were uh, the, their their bodies were recovered. Uh, they were buried in a similar fashion, in a similar location, um, uh, in a, in a similar way. Uh, all the women were petite. Uh, they were um, they they all did the same thing for a living. Uh, they all advertised the same way.
0: The four victims were Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Barthelemy, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. The bodies of another seven people, including a man and a toddler, were also found in the same time period. The family members of the four women have accused police and the media for failing to pursue justice for their loved ones because they were sex workers. Rex Hoyerman is an architect who worked in Manhattan. Following his arrest, authorities searched his Massapequa Park home, where they found an arsenal of 279 weapons. Elsewhere in New York, public hospital nurses are celebrating after winning contract negotiations, which include wage increases to achieve parity with private hospital nurses and measures to improve staffing and retention. Crystal Sims Murphy of the New York State Nurses Association said, quote, The public sector is a lifeline for New York City's most vulnerable patients, who are mostly black and brown, immigrant and low-income New Yorkers. They deserve equitable, quality care, and this contract can help deliver it, she said. In other labor news, the trucking company Yellow is shutting down and will reportedly file for bankruptcy. 30,000 people could lose their jobs. The president of the Teamsters, which represents over two-thirds of Yellow workers, said, quote, Yellow's historically proven that it could not manage itself despite billions of dollars in worker concessions and hundreds of millions in bailout funding from the federal government, unquote. Yellow received $700 million from the government in a pandemic-era bailout, despite the company facing a lawsuit from the Justice Department for allegedly defrauding the federal government. The family of Henrietta Lacks, a black cancer patient whose cells were taken by Johns Hopkins University Hospital without her consent in 1951, has settled with pharmaceutical company Thermo Fisher Scientific. Henrietta Lacks' family has denounced the racist medical system that allowed the biotech company to make billions in profit from the HeLa cell line from the name Henrietta Lacks, which helped produce remedies for multiple diseases, including the first polio vaccine— Details of the settlement were not made public, but the plaintiff celebrated the lawsuit's resolution, which came Tuesday on Henrietta Lacks' birthday. This is her grandson, Alfred Lacks. Our family member, our loved one, Henrietta Lacks, 103 years old today. And as Ben said, today, it couldn't have been a more fitting day for her to have justice, yeah. for her family to have relief. It was a long fight. It was a long fight, over 70 years. And Henrietta Lacks gets her day. To see all of our coverage of Henrietta Lacks and this case, go to democracynow.org. And the prominent Chicano writer, Roberto Sintley Rodriguez, has died at the age of 69. His books include Justice, A Question of Race, which chronicled his quest for justice after being brutally beaten in 1979 by four sheriff deputies in East Los Angeles while he was on a reporting assignment for Lowrider magazine. In 1986, a jury awarded him $205,000, which he used to start a bilingual magazine. He later became a Mexican-American studies professor at the University of Arizona. He also served as director of the Raza Database Project to track the killing of Latinos, Asian, and indigenous people by law enforcement. He appeared on Democracy Now! in 2021.
1: And then again, it's it's all about dehumanization. And I'm not... not, uh... Uh, exaggerating when I say, I tracked this violence to 1492, which means when Europeans came here, they decided that the people here, like myself, that we were not human. Africans that were brought here also were not human, according to them. In my opinion, it's the same dynamic taking place today. Otherwise, we wouldn't see this massive amount of both the killings and the disparity.
0: Roberto Sintli Rodriguez speaking in 2021. He's died at the age of 69. To see our interviews with him, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, we look at the historic indictment of Donald J. Trump for conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. Stay with us. Danny Elfman's overture to Pee Wee Herman's big adventure. The beloved comedian Paul Rubens passed away on Sunday at the age of 70. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan González in Chicago. Hi, Juan.
3: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: For the first time in U.S. history, a former president has been criminally charged with conspiring to overturn an election. On Tuesday, Donald Trump was indicted on four counts—conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, tampering with a witness, and conspiracy against the rights of citizens, the right of their vote to be counted— This is the third time in four months the former Republican president has been criminally charged as he campaigns to regain the presidency in 2024. No other president has ever been indicted before. The Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith announced the indictment charges in a short statement. He did not take questions from the press.
1: The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives on the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States. Since the attack on our Capitol, the Department of Justice has remained committed To ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. In the meantime, I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation. And that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law.
0: The most serious charge against Donald Trump carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. The case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who, as appointed by President Obama, has handed down sentences in January 6 insurrection cases that were harsher than prosecutors recommended. Tuesday night on CNN, Trump's lead attorney on the case, John Lauro, called the indictment an attack on Trump's free speech.
4: This is politics. This indictment is about pure politics. We engage in vigorous debate in this country about politics. What we don't do is criminalize political speech. This indictment is a game changer. It's the first time that we've taken political speech and said we're going to criminalize it by the party that's in control against the party that's contesting the next election where the two individuals involved are going to be running for office. That is an incredible set of circumstances.
0: Trump has been ordered to make an initial appearance in federal court in Washington, D.C. Thursday. The 45-page 45, the 45 indictment against the 45th president of the United States, also references six unnamed co-conspirators. They likely include four of Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Sidney Powell, as well as Jeffrey Clark, a former Justice Department official. This all comes after Trump pleaded not guilty in June after he was charged with unlawful retention of classified government documents after leaving office and obstruction of justice in another Jack Smith. Case Last week, prosecutors in that case added three more criminal counts that accused Trump of ordering employees to delete security videos while he was under investigation. In March, a grand jury convened by the Manhattan District Attorney indicted Trump for falsifying business records to hide hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. Meanwhile, Trump faces a fourth criminal investigation in Georgia over accusations he sought to undo his 2020 election loss in the state. For more, we're joined by two guests in Washington, D.C. Robert Weissman is with us, president of Public Citizen, one of the groups organizing nationwide Not Above the Law Trump Indictment Rapid Response rallies in support of accountability this Thursday, the day of the arraignment. Also with us, Dennis Aftergut, former federal prosecutor. He's currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. His piece for Slate is headlined, Jack Smith's January 6th Trump indictment is a prosecutorial masterstroke. Well, Dennis, let's begin there. Why? Uh, Can you respond to the significance of this indictment and what these four counts are all about?
5: First, it's an honor to be here. The significance relates to the fact that this is an indictment that will bring about not just the trial of the century, but the trial of all American history. This is an indictment about lies to disenfranchise the American people and about a man who would be king. We fought. A war of independence in 1776 to 1783 to prevent that. That's why this case is more important than any other.
3: Uh, but, uh, Dennis, after that, I'd like to ask you this whole issue of these six co conspirators. They were not indicted along with him. Obviously, the government probably is hoping for some of them to turn. But if some of them ended up being uh, indicted, what would that do in terms of a timeline for a trial of this kind?
5: Nothing. What makes this indictment so elegant are two key things. One, that it was only Trump who was indicted. You can be confident that the others will not be indicted until after a trial date is set so that the trial of Trump goes first. And the el- other element of uh, elegance is that all of the so many facts alleged, none of which would be alleged if Jack Smith couldn't prove them, all of them go to all four counts that streamlines the trial to ensure that if it is set sufficiently early, the case will finish well before, not just the November election, but hopefully before the Republican nominating convention in July.
3: And I'd like to bring in Robert Weissman of of Public Citizen into the conversation. Uh, Your response uh, to the indictment and also to the Trump campaign's uh, statement, uh, which was released on his his social media site, Truth Social, which said in part, quote, the lawlessness of these Uh, Persecutions of President Trump and his supporters is reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the former Soviet Union and other authoritarian dictatorial regimes.
4: Yeah, thanks, Juan, and hello to you and Amy and Dennis. Um, I think Dennis gets it exactly right in talking about how consequential this indictment and the trial will be in American history. You know, I think one of the things that's important about the indictment, it it tells the story, basically the story we know that was revealed, that we saw in real time, and that was detailed by the January 6th committee. But the charges, which might sound legalistic at first, are really about that conspiracy over many months to overturn the election. And one charge in particular, I think, gets to the heart of the matter, which is not just about interfering with an abstract government proceeding but denying a conspiracy to deny people their right to vote. It's a civil rights statute tracing back to the Civil War era. And it really gets to the heart of what happened, which is that Donald Trump tried to strip away from all of us our democracy and our individual rights to vote to protect himself and remain in power. I think as this case, as the events of January 6th have receded in time, And the Trump presidency has receded in time. It's possible to forget how horrible that period was, the constant assault on decency, people of color, immigrants, democracy. And this case brings that back to the fore. Um, We can't let him become a caricature, a Saturday Night Live character. He was a real person who put us through the ringer and hopes to do so again. His comments uh, that, that you read and others that put out, come out from the campaign, um, leaving aside the outrage of degrading uh, the experience of people in the Holocaust or others who've suffered in comparison to his legitimate prosecution. R- remind us of the strategy he's going to pursue, which is always to take fair accusations against him and throw them against his opponents. And it's going to be up to all of us. To stay vigilant, not to let just recede in the background and something that's going on in the back of our heads, but to stay attentive and engaged, and uh, demand accountability take place. That's what drove this case forward. It wouldn't have happened, but for people staying attentive, but for the January 6th committee. And I think to make sure we get the outcome we should get is going to require people to stay attentive and stay engaged.
0: I want to turn to a video posted Tuesday by the former Clinton Labor Secretary, Berkeley professor, UC Berkeley professor Robert Reich, about how and why Trump could be barred from the ballot.
6: Trump could face criminal charges for inciting an insurrection, but that's not necessary to bar him from the ballot. Secretaries of state and other election officials across the country have the power to determine whether candidates meet the qualifications for office. They have a constitutional duty to keep Trump off the ballot, based on the clear text of the U.S. Constitution. Now, some might argue that voters should be able to decide for themselves whether candidates are fit for office, even if they're dangerous. But the Constitution sets the bar for what disqualifies someone from being president. Candidates must be at least 35 years old and a natural-born U.S. citizen, and they must not have engaged in insurrection after they previously took an oath to defend the Constitution. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has already been used to disqualify an insurrectionist from continuing to hold public office in New Mexico, with the state Supreme Court upholding the ruling. This is not about partisanship. If a Democrat attempts to overthrow the government, they should not be allowed on ballots either.
0: So that's the former Clinton Labor Secretary, Robert Reich, now UC Berkeley professor. Rob Weissman, I'm wondering your response to this. I mean, President Trump was not charged with seditious conspiracy. Um, uh, Also, Eugene V. Debs ran from prison, though he also was not charged with this or in prison for this.
4: Right. So what Robert Reich is talking about and references there is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which, as he says— disqualifies people who've taken an oath of office to the government and then have engaged in insurrections. Again, another post-Civil War amendment. It does absolutely seem to apply here. It is very clear that Trump does not need to be charged with insurrection or really charged with anything or criminally convicted um, to be disqualified for having supported and participated in an insurrection. Uh, Congress could take action to disqualify him. That's not going to happen. But I think we are going to see a lot of cases brought before secretaries of state across the country saying, look, you're in charge of making this decision. He drove an insurrection. He should be disqualified from the ballot in your state.
3: And Robert Weston, what do you think uh, is will be the impact on the, the hard core of Trump supporters who, no matter what he has been accused of or indicted for, continue to rally behind him? I think it makes all the sense in the world to sort of think through the political ramifications of this,
4: but also to say first that this was a case brought to defend the democracy. And I think that was the imperative. I think worries about the political consequences may have delayed the bringing of the case in the first place. Jack Smith moving forward, I think, was a decision not to do a political calculus, but just to enforce the rule of law, demand accountability and say, if you launch a coup against the United States of America, you must be held criminally accountable. And I agree with that. In terms of the political ramifications, you know, we'll have to see. I think for the hardcore base of support for Trump, there is, as he once said, literally nothing he could do that would shake their belief in him. Uh, And in fact, every effort to hold him accountable becomes part of the story of how he's aggrieved, attacked and deserves more support. That Um, hardcore base of support, though, is only a portion of the party and only a smaller portion of the country. There are a lot of people who support or might support Trump, um, but who I think will reflect on all of these criminal charges against him and also specifically what he did after the election and up to January 6th. And we'll see how it all plays out. I don't think it's preordained at all, um, but I'm hopeful that presenting these facts, reminding people of the horror of what happened will help them arrive at good judgments.
0: I mean, it's not a insignificant number or percentage of people who are supporting Trump. In fact, the numbers keep going up. He is neck and neck with Biden if the two of them face off in 2024. Uh, BBC says an average of opinion polls from July 31st suggests he has a commanding lead of 37 points over his nearest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, uh, the story was headlined, Why Trump's Poll Lead Went Up After Criminal Indictments. Um, so I'm wondering, Dennis Aftergood, if you could respond to that and then also talk about um, the judge in this case, Tanya Chetkin, very interesting, appointed by Obama, I think, in 2013. Um, she has gone beyond what prosecutors asked for with some of the January 6th uh, defendants in terms of sentencing. She also made a decision in a Trump case to having to do with him not wanting to hand over documents um, ruled against him. The significance of Tanya Chutkin in Washington, D.C., um, presiding over this case, as opposed to Aileen Cannon uh, in Florida, um, uh, presiding over the other um Jack Smith case, which is around the Mar-a-Lago documents and the cover up there, who is a Trump appointee?
5: There's so much to unpack in that question.
0: Take your time.
5: With respect to Judge Chutkin, you referred to her decision against Trump earlier in November of 2021, in which she denied his request for executive privilege to bar the January 6th house committee from getting documents from the white house. She ruled for that house committee. And in doing so, this relates back to what I said earlier. She said, presidents are not Kings. Presidents are not Kings. This uh, relates to, what Robert said at the beginning, which is absolutely correct. Jack Smith and the Justice Department are defending the rule of law and the American Constitution. Political calculations are not their business. That said, uh, three quick points on the politics. First, Political boats can only take so much water. There's an accumulating effect. Second, unlike national security documents in the Mar-a-Lago case, Americans witnessed the insurrection on January 6th. They witnessed, as you referred to earlier, Amy, uh, or Jack Smith did in his statement, the assault on Capitol Police defending our Constitution. That makes a huge difference. And last, you see over time the accumulating effect. You see that growing numbers of even Republicans have been dropping off of Trump's support. Even as you see, even as you see, uh, his support increasing among Republicans, as you said. And yesterday you saw Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence turn on Donald Trump and say, this is why he should not be returned to office. Previously, Pence said that he should not be indicted for taking bad legal advice, He seems to have changed his mind. This indictment has every prospect of peeling off some Republicans, not the hardcore, as Robert said, but certainly in the general election, clear thinking, independent Americans who turn elections.
3: And and Dennis, afterward, I want to ask you. uh... This indictment, did you find any new information in it that had not previously been uh, revealed?
5: Yes, but the key elegance, as I said earlier, is in the way it's done, the charges that are presented, the uh, exclusion of other defendants from this indictment. But yes, there are some pieces of new information. Just for example, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, is in the middle of the fake election conspiracy as alleged in this indictment, but he's not charged. And that is telling us by negative inference that he's cooperating. We also learned, as Amy said, about the other co-conspirators We didn't know exactly who they would be. They are likely to be charged later, including Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. And um, uh, we also learned, this is a small tidbit, but it's interesting, that Mike Pence took contemporaneous notes in January of his conversations with Donald Trump. Two things about that of significance. Number one, it strengthens the case, uh, the, uh, the evidence, because Jack Smith now has those notes. And number two, why does someone take contemporaneous notes? It tells us that in late January, the former vice president who had served loyally, the president of the United States for four years, did not trust him any further than he could throw him.
0: Rob Weisman, before we end, uh, on this issue of Mike Pence, quite interesting that he might not even qualify to be in the debate, in the first Republican presidential debate, according to his um, uh, poll numbers and the support he's getting. But he could be a key witness in this case, the rival of President Trump for the presidency in uh, 2024. Um, if you could talk about Lauro, the new lawyer, uh President Trump is paying out tens of millions of dollars, apparently, though he's not known for paying lawyers. And there's been a whole question of where he's getting this money from. Did he raise it falsely, asking for support um, for the whole movement, but now for legal fees, etc.? If you can talk about Lauro's point—I mean, Trump wasn't charged with seditious conspiracy. He wasn't charged with insurrection. But Loro talking about the attack on free speech—
4: Right. Again, this is an example of, of Trump and his minions using legitimate accusations against him and throwing them against uh, his opponents. There is no attack on free speech here. Donald Trump has attacked people's th- free speech throughout his long uh, career, including before he got into politics. The argument here is that, well, Trump was just saying stuff uh, and he's allowed under the First Amendment to say stuff, including things that aren't true. But, of course, the allegation is not that he was just saying things. It's that he was leading a conspiracy to overthrow the results of the election. People are saying, for example, criminals use speech all the time. This is a stick-up. Give me the money. That's not protected free speech. Just because you speak doesn't mean you get protected protection from criminal prosecution if you're speaking as part of a criminal enterprise. The other thing it's clear the Trump lawyers and Trump legal team are going to argue is that Trump, did not act, truly, that Trump truly believed that he won the election. And one thing that the indictment does very well is explain not just the objective fact that he lost the election, but that everyone around him, except for his co-conspirators, everyone with credibility, everyone with authority, everyone with knowledge, told him over and over again that he lost. Two attorneys general, the head of election security of the U.S. government, his vice president— His campaign, his campaign pollsters, state election officials, all of whom supported him and wanted him to win, told him that he, in fact, lost. So his claim that he believed this was a victory is not a credible claim and I think not going to be a strong defense in this case going forward. The claim about First Amendment protections, I think, is pretty laughable.
0: Well, Rob Wiseman, want to thank you for being with us, President of Public Citizen, one of the groups organizing nationwide not-above-the-law Trump indictment rapid response rallies in support of accountability Thursday, the day of the arraignment. And Dennis Aftergut, joining us from Sonoma, California, former federal prosecutor currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. We'll link to your piece in Slate. Jack Smith's January 6th Trump indictment is a prosecutorial masterstroke. Coming up, the war in Ukraine, as Russia continues to attack grain ports in Ukraine, while Kyiv escalates drone strikes in Moscow. Stay with us.
7: I'm not no crocodile like the one in Dublin Zoo, who lived in a cage the length and breadth of his body. With a window which people would look through And throw coins on his back to taunt him Though he couldn't move, Even if he wanted to I'm not no animal in the zoo I'm not no whipping boy for you You may not treat me like you do I'm not no animal in the zoo. My skin is not a football for you. My head is not a football for you. My body's not a football for you. My womb is not a football for you. My It's not a football for you I'm not no animal in the zoo This animal will jump up and eat you I'm not no animal in the zoo And I've every intention Of leaping up and getting you La, La 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 la
0: Red Football by Sinead O'Connor. She passed away last week at the age of 56. To watch our web exclusive, as well as the interview we did on Democracy Now! on Sinead, um, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. This is Democracy Now! We turn to Ukraine where Russian drone strikes on the Odessa region caused fires at a port near the border with NATO member Romania that damaged facilities that transport Ukraine's crucial grain exports. This comes after Russia left a deal two weeks ago that allowed Ukraine to export grain to world markets through the city of Odessa. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia had, quote, once again targeted ports, grain facilities and global food security. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin after the attack and said he'll continue efforts to reinstate the Black Sea grain deal and push for de-escalation. On Tuesday, the U.S. envoy to the United Nations said there were indications Russia may return to discussions about the grain deal. This comes after Russian missiles struck a residential high-rise in the Ukrainian city of Kriviri Monday, the hometown of President Zelensky, killing at least six people, including a 10-year-old girl and her mother. Dozens more were injured in the attack. One resident said she raced to the scene of the blast after receiving a panicked call from a friend who lived nearby. I only heard, help me, so we jumped into our car and drove here. What we saw was pure horror, committed by the Russian, I don't want to say the word here. They hit a residential building, and her block is just next to it, so everything in her apartment was ruined. She survived and is alive, thank God. Elsewhere, officials in Ukraine's Russian-occupied Donetsk region say two people were killed and six others injured when Ukrainian artillery fire struck a civilian bus. In Moscow, Russia's defense ministry says Ukraine launched a fresh wave of drone attacks on Russia's capital, with one of the devices striking an office tower that had been hit in a previous attack Sunday. Meanwhile, Poland's accusing Russian ally Belarus of violating its airspace with military helicopters. Belarus denied the accusation, but Poland's defense ministry said Tuesday it's sending, quote, additional forces and resources, including combat helicopters, to its eastern border. Also Tuesday, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko mockingly told Poland it should thank him for keeping in check Wagner mercenaries now stationed in Belarus after last month's failed mutiny in Russia. This all comes as Saudi Arabia is planning to host a peace summit this weekend. This is U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller.
2: Um, uh, support this summit. We have long said um, that it is important that Ukraine be in the driver's seat when it comes to any potential diplomatic resolution uh, to this war. Um, it's important that countries that have not yet heard directly from Ukraine hear from Ukraine, so we are gratified that there will be countries that attending this summit to um, uh, talk directly with Ukraine. If your question was with respect to what other countries will be attending, I would defer to the governments of Saudi Arabia and Ukraine to, that, to, that, to answer that question, if the question you- is respect. I'm coming. I'm coming to you. You don't have to to jump in if the question is with respect to um, uh, what U.S. government officials will be attending. I can confirm that there will be U.S. government officials not ready to make announcements yet about who those those will be. But as the week goes on, um, certainly you can expect that, that we will do so.
0: In a moment, we'll be joined by Rajan Menon, director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of several books, including Conflict in Ukraine, The Unwinding of the Post-Cold War Order, He also just recently returned from Ukraine and has some very interesting pieces. Rajan, it's great to have you with us. If you can start off by talking about the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive and uh, the state of it, as you just recently returned from Ukraine.
8: The primary focus of the Ukrainian counteroffensive is in the south, particularly two provinces in Donetsk, the southwest part of it, and Zaporizhia, to some extent, in Ersan. The Russians have had a great deal of time over the past several months to create layered fortifications to seed the area with mines, and they're dug in. The real question is, how much headway can the Ukrainians make in the face of those barriers, plus extremely intense Russian artillery fire and air power? They have made some advances in a few areas on the southern front, but we're way too early in this process to know how successful the counteroffensive will be. People have already called it a failure. Some have called it a success. I think we should be in a wait and watch mode.
0: Juan, we're we're just turning on your mic. Go ahead. Juan, we can't hear you. I... go ahead. Um, Rajan, if you can talk about uh, Saudi Arabia, what's coming up this weekend, uh, who's included in this uh, so-called peace talks?
8: Well, Russia is not included, so it's not formally a peace negotiation between Ukraine and Russia. I think this is one of several efforts made. The Chinese made an effort, the African group made an effort recently— This is now a third effort to get some movement on the peace front. The difficulty is that neither side, neither Ukraine nor Russia, feels that it is losing the war. Each feels it can still win. And so I have no indication that the two sides have any convergence in terms of how they see a settlement working out. So, I wouldn't be very hopeful about these processes. If I had to give you my best guess, it is that we are liable to see this war continue for several months, if not more than that.
3: yeah, I wanted to go back. I know we were having some technical difficulties, but I wanted to ask you in terms of the offensive, the, the at least in the u s media, uh, there was uh, quite a bit of expectation, one that the offensive would have started much earlier than it did, but also that it would be it would have been more successful by now. You're saying that uh, uh, that it's still too early to stay, but isn't it already a uh, pretty evident that what the expectation was of NATO uh, and uh, and and the Ukrainian government have not been met? Well, I
8: don't know what the expectations of NATO were. But let's remember that we're a month into this. The Ukrainians are hobbled in many ways, um, primarily the lack of air power, probably insufficient artillery and ammunition. And so I think to expect them to go charging forward into layered Russian defenses and take on enormous artillery fire and lose A very large number of people was, I think, from the beginning, very foolish. I know everybody formed a very quick opinion that the counteroffensive has failed. I'm not saying that it's going to be a smashing success, but I think one thing this war has taught us is that many things have happened that people said would not happen, beginning with the invasion itself. So, I think at the moment, what the Ukrainians have done is to make some headway in three areas along the southern front. But, and this has been missed in a lot of the press reporting, they have carried out systematic attacks on Russian logistical facilities, on command centers, on fuel and ammunition depots across the southern front, including very intensively in Ukraine. The goal seems to be, and I'm not saying that this will succeed, to make it much harder for Russia to supply the troops that are in in the south, dug in in the south. So I think for all this to play out, we need time. It is definitely true that the Ukrainians don't have all of what they need to pull off a smashing counteroffensive. But from the beginning, this has been an uphill battle for them, because in every measure of military power, Russia far exceeds anything they have, even counting Western support.
3: And I wanted to ask you about the impact of the uh, the Western sanctions or the NATO sanctions uh, on Russia, which are the most draconian ever against the nation, uh, and uh, and yet... Uh, last year, apparently, Russia, not only did its economy not decline, but it actually, there was an, uh, an increase in uh, production and output in in Russia. I'm wondering your sense of how long Russia can hold out against these sanctions.
8: I've been skeptical all along that sanctions would make any difference in terms of getting Mr. Putin to stop the war. We have a long history with sanctions, and we know that when a government... Decides to pursue a goal that, for whatever reason, it deems extremely important, sanctions are unlikely to work. I think the history of sanctions in recent years or historically suggests that they don't really move countries away from positions that they're determined to produce. All the indicators of the Russian economy bear out your point. There's certainly no evidence whatsoever. Of personal discontent that President Putin cannot handle. I was just looking at some public opinion polls. They show no significant diminution in Putin's standing at home. So I don't think he faces any kind of possibility of an insurrection or opposition to the war. That's for many reasons. Some people support him. Other people don't like the war, but are too afraid to speak out. Yet a third group may not like the war, but are going about their business and just getting on with their lives. But the long and short of it is that he doesn't face anything on the home front that should give him a great deal of worry.
0: Um, If you can talk about the people you met with in Ukraine, Uh, you wrote a piece months ago um, talking about why talk of negotiations and, you know, discussion in the media, because this is certainly larger than Russia and Ukraine. Russia's military, far more powerful than Ukraine, but so many Western nations are now involved with supporting Ukraine. Um, all over the world, uh, people are concerned about what's happening. But somehow, this discussion of negotiations is seen as a pro-Russian uh, conversation, as opposed to a concern about the global— Um, just perspective on, can we afford this war, especially when it comes to threats of nuclear weapons used, Rishan?
8: Right. So, there are two issues that make the war of wider consequence. So, there may be more than two, but I'll speak to two. One is, of course, the one you mentioned, the prospect of nuclear escalation. It is certainly something that we have to be concerned about, for obvious reasons. The problem with escalation is that it's very difficult to know what is in the mind of Vladimir Putin. So you and I, for example, could sit down and try step by step to figure out under what circumstances might he escalate. Would it be situation one, situation two, situation three? But we have no way of knowing whether he's thinking that way. And even if we could get a fix on what he's thinking, down the road six months later, his calculations could change. So there's a there's a problem of logical deduction and how far it can get us. There's also an information problem because we don't have access to anything that he's written about this uh, in a confidential vein or what he's told people. So we're flying in the dark. That is not to minimize the danger of escalation. It's certainly a problem. The second one is the whole question of what happens to global food prices now that exports from the Black Sea, and now increasingly from the Danube, which the Russians are attacking Ukrainian ports in the Danube, if um, food from Ukraine, which is a major supplier of several grains and sunflower oil comes to an end. So there are wider consequences. But we have to come back to the narrow question here, unfortunately, of have the two sides shown any indication that they're willing to sign a peace agreement? Mr. Putin's position has been, yes, we can have a peace negotiation, but Ukraine has to essentially concede up front that it will forfeit the four provinces in which last fall Russia, Russia conducted a referendum and said they were formally annexed to the Soviet Union. Now, the Ukrainians are not going to accept a partition of their country. It is true that they're in an uphill battle, but in my visits to Ukraine, one thing that's become absolutely clear, and this goes to the point of the U.S. fighting to the last Ukrainian, I understand why people are saying that, but it's not as if the Ukrainians are fighting unwillingly. So if you wrap all this together... The pessimistic conclusion I have to give you is that we're not at the end of this war and it will continue. But all of the risks that you mentioned, especially the food risk and the escalation risk, are certainly very much going to be present
3: and I wanted to ask you, you've taken three trips now to uh, to Ukraine, uh, to the area still under Ukrainian government control. What's your sense of how the population is holding up there? And obviously we don't know what's happened in those areas that have been annexed by Russia. We do know that about 2 million uh, people in those areas uh, fled to Russia, not to the West. So that we, I would assume that they had some sort of Uh, support for what uh, the Russian government was doing, or at least felt safer going into Russia than they did going into Poland or other parts of Western Europe. So I'm wondering how you feel the Ukrainian people are holding up at this stage.
8: Right. Just on your last point, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily conclude that those who went to Russia did it because of pro-Russian feelings, that could be possible. The other explanation is simply, that was the easiest escape route for them. And there's some evidence that some people who were in Russia were taken there unwillingly. So that, that question is still very much murky. As to the mood, I've been now to the southern front lines and the eastern front lines. I've traveled all over Ukraine, and I've been to Ukraine even before the war. Coming to the war itself, one of the consistent things that I've found, because I've asked people this a number of times, has the economic privation, the refugees, internally displaced people, the destruction of the Ukrainian economy, and has the number of war dead led to the point where you think that although you cannot get ideal terms, it's time to wind down the war? I have not met a single person who's told me, yes, the pain has gotten to the point where we have to seek a way out. Now, the one thing that the Ukrainians have to bear in mind is if the war drags on into next year and the United States, which is the main funder of the war, because the number two country, Germany, gives only about a tenth of what the United States gives, will the United States at some point conclude that it cannot continue supplying the war and will there be pressure on Ukraine to come to terms? That is the thing that I think could force the Ukrainians to the table, because without American support, they simply cannot continue the
0: war. Rajan Menon, we want to thank you for being with us. Director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities. He recently returned from visiting Ukraine. His books include Conflict in Ukraine, The Unwinding of the the Post-Cold War Order. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.